Uh, Lord, open our eyes uh, to what you would have us to see and plow up our hard hearts so that the seeds of the gospel might take uh, firm root. And Lord, that you would um, hold on to us as we hold fast to your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last semester we started the book of Acts and uh, because I feel like it is really, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. And a lot of the issues that the book of Acts deals with uh, are things that are contemporary for us. And um, we stopped at Acts chapter 4, and I really didn't look ahead. Uh, and so on rally day, you get the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And that is the story of two people being struck down dead because they lied about money. Um, so let's see what God has to say to us uh, this morning. Um, here we go. Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The word of the Lord. Yeah, right. Um, uh, you know, it, I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, but every once in a while something comes up and if someone really said, well, get, there has to be some part that you don't think is necessarily inspired. And I would probably say, okay, I'll concede verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and all upon who had heard of these things, because that doesn't require supernatural intervention to be really freaked out about what happened. And so... Here we have this really uh, incredible story. It's a very sad story. And this morning, I want to talk mainly about guilt and wealth, but also the problems with this story. Uh, because some of you are thinking about this now, like this is a hard story to believe, especially concerning God's nature. And that's a big issue today. If you read or, or listen to Richard Dawkins or any of those guys, these are the types of stories that they're going to hold up and say, this is why I'm an atheist. So, uh, we have Ananias and Sapphira, and I'm just going to give you the Reader's Digest version to tell you what happened. You probably, you're smart, but I just want to go through it one more time. Ananias and Sapphira are members of the local church here in Acts. And what has just happened in chapter 4, some people got arrested, but then we have this funny verse that everyone starts selling their stuff and holding certain things in common and handing stuff over. And Barnabas actually comes before the church publicly and gives a bag of money, which is the amount that he received from the sale of a piece of property. 
Ananias and Sapphira are sitting in the congregation and they're inspired by this move. And so they sell uh, a nice little piece of property. Uh, But what they decide to do is to keep a little bit for themselves. But what they've done is they've told the church, we're going to give you all that we get from this property. But then they say, you know, we're going to keep a little bit back. We don't know the reason. They just do. So Ananias comes. And he stands before everybody and says, here is my wonderful gift, which I'm giving to the church, the proceeds of the sale of the property that Sapphira and I just had. And uh, Peter, by the intervention of the Holy Spirit, says, you're lying. You're lying. And uh, we'll get into what kills them or what might have killed them in a minute. Ananias dies. But nobody tells Sapphira anything. So uh, as, a, as a footnote, uh, Peter being Peter, we probably could have worked on his pastoral care just a little bit uh, at this moment. Uh, but no one tells, him that, tells Sapphira anything. But sh- sh- three hours goes by, and she goes in trying to figure out what's going on. Have you seen my husband? And uh, Peter gives her an out and says, is this how much you sold the property for? And she says, yeah, that's it. That's, that's right. That's right. Shoot. <laughs> Uh, and then she meets uh, the same fate. There's a neat little idiom where he says, the feet of those who just buried your husband, um, which is a Hebrew idiom that some of you might remember from um, the Old Testament. Uh, Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. And so it's, um, it's, uh, it was very clever on Peter's part to say that, but not very healing. And then uh, she dies and she's carried out and everybody is filled uh, with great fear uh, over what's happened. This is not the first time in the Bible something like this has happened. In Joshua 7, uh, Achan uh, actually does almost exactly what Ananias does. He takes what is the Lord's and appropriates it for himself, and bad things happen. There's a scene, uh, there are a couple scenes in the Old Testament. One, when they're in the tabernacle, uh, two of Aaron's sons get this bright idea that what they really need to do is jazz up God's sanctuary, and so they're going to bring some fire in. And God said, I told you no fire. And, uh, and so he fired them permanently. And then, um, and then when uh, they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, it's the scene where David is uh, dancing around right before that. And uh, as they carry it back in the covenant, they put it, they were being lazy, and they said, we know that priests are supposed to carry it in, but we're going to put it on a mule cart. We're going to have some cat, some oxen pulled in. And, um, and they're on a ricket. Believe it or not, the, the Israeli Department of Transportation in the B.C. era was not great. And so uh, they were hitting some ruts, and probably involuntarily, a guy saw that the Ark of the Covenant was about to fall off and land on the road, so he reached up to grab it, and the moment he touched it, he died. Okay, uh, So this is not the first time something like this uh, has happened, and uh, yet this uh, is the first time something like this has happened in the church. Because remember, the church has been ar- around forever and ever and ever, but really it starts to coalesce in around uh, the profession of faith, uh, around Jesus at uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit, in the book of Acts, and this new founded church is undergoing intense, intense persecution. And the Lord is blessing them in spite of that fact. And then this is the first real issue that they've had to deal with internally this issue of Ananias 
and Sapphira lying. Now, uh, it's not only what the Bible says, but what the Bible doesn't say. What we know is that they were under no compulsion to give all of the proceeds to the church. Peter makes that clear. Before you sold it, it was yours. And even after you sold it, the money was yours. Like they could have said, we're going to give you 10% or we're going to give you 90%. Uh, but what, uh, what they wanted to do is that Ananias wanted to see, be seen as on par with Barnabas. Uh, they were under no compulsion uh, to do this. They, they could have done whatever they wanted. It, it belonged entirely to them. But Ananias wanted to be seen as a major player, uh, a holy man, uh, a devout Christian. And so the problem with Ananias and Sapphira, because she was in on it too, is this idea of projection. Uh, this is what I want you to think of me, whether it's true or not. Right? Now, I feel this pressure in church sometimes. Um, I think that a lot of people in church uh, feel the pressure to give more than they're actually being called to give. And I'm not even talking financially. I'm talking about normally your time and your talent. I see this a lot with people who first become Christians. They feel like they have to get involved in everything. Right? I mean, people who avoided kids their whole life are now volunteering in the nursery, uh, are now like teaching kids how to sing. I mean, it's this uh, newfound faith in Jesus uh, drives them to want to be involved in all kinds of stuff uh, to the point that it's like they're ready to charge hell with a water pistol. Right? I mean, there's not anything that they wouldn't do. And they get so involved and so immersed in the life of the church, they finally get to the point where they say, I'm really tired. I'm really tired. And I don't want to pull back because if I pull back, that makes me look like maybe my faith is a little bit weak. And maybe I'm not as sincere a person as the church thought that I was. So I, I, don't, want, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have that awkward conversation with the person who's running this ministry. Uh, and sometimes we will do it. You know, they'll say things like, well, I just can't do the nursery anymore. Oh, well, I have no idea who will get to replace you. <laughs> you know, um, you know maybe, maybe there's a work release program I can look into. <laughs> You know, they'll, they'll, and so they're putting the Lord's lane on you and you, you're, it makes you feel even worse. And you're, I mean, it took everything in your power to, to tell this person where, I mean, heaven forbid you have to talk to one of the clergy, right? And say, I know I've been volunteering on Thursday mornings to do this homeless ministry, uh, but, um, but I can't do it because I got to get my kids to school and my spouse is going to kill me because I'm off feeding the homeless and she needs somebody to feed her kids, you know? Um, it's a, somebody knows what I'm talking about. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an issue. And so what I find that happens a lot of the time is rather than simply having the power and the ability to be honest with the clergy and the church, a lot of people like that simply disappear. They, they, just, they just disappear from everything. And they say, well, I'm going to take a little bit of a break. Uh, and then they just sort of... Now, sometimes they are just taking a little bit of a break. But for some people... Uh, that pressure to perform and to be the dutiful, good Christian is so overwhelming uh, that they get paralyzed and they lie. <laughs> right? They'll lie. I mean, people will tell me oftentimes, well, I've got this going on and I've got that going on. And sometimes I, I think, well, that's probably not true, but I'm going to believe you. Uh, and when actually 
it's really right to say, and, and I really appreciate it when they just say, I'm tired of doing that. Right? Because that way I know, okay, this person is just a little bit worn out, and, and we don't need to be calling on them uh, to do anything. And if I know that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, and you're praying, and you're reading your Bible, and you're in tune with the Spirit, that may in fact be God speaking to you saying, you need a break. Right? God made the earth, the whole creation tree, six days, on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. Not that God needs a rest, but who does? You and me. But here's the problem. We're never able to rest. Right? We're never able to rest. There's n- I mean, I've said this before, and I'll, I'll say it again, because we're here at the end of, like, everybody says, how was your vacation? And you're like, I need a vacation for my vacation. Right? Um, and I feel like for a lot of men, and probably some working ladies in here, um, there's a part of you that when you, you know, it, it's, if you take the kids, it's not a family vacation, it's a family trip. And, um, and, and you, you're on vacation, you just think, you don't articulate this, but you feel, I can't wait to get back to work. <laughs> I, I can't wait uh, to get back to work. And you feel awful, and you feel guilty, uh, but all of us need and want uh, the ability to be rested and to be comfortable and to be uh, okay with where we are with with the Lord. And what God gives us, hopefully, in a Christian community is the ability to be honest with one another and transparent and vulnerable with one another because, you know what, what you're thinking and what you're saying to me as to why you're probably not going to be a part of that ministry, I've felt before too, a hundred times over. And so I look at Ananias, and I understand where he's coming from. I've used this illustration, but I'm going to tell it again because it is the illustration. One Sunday, I found myself in the pew at St. Helens with Lauren for some reason or another, and I wasn't up front. And I, believe it or not, I'm very rarely in the pew when a collection plate is passed by my hands. You know, the, they don't, the ushers don't come up to the chancel and say, hey, hey. Um, they, um, and, and Lauren and I... Uh, forever have done direct deposit into, uh, in, uh, for our tithe. But as the collection plate came around one Sunday, I see it coming down the pew, and I panicked. I said, give, give me a couple dollars. Give me, give me something to fold and put in the plate when it goes by. And she's, well, I mean, she's like, well, who, who are you? No one carries cash anymore other than Frank Limehouse. If you're going to mug anyone, mug Frank. So, <laughs> I mean, who carries cash anymore? So I didn't know what to do. So I quickly looked, and there was an offering envelope in the pew rack. I picked it up, sealed it, empty, and when the collection plate went by, I placed it in. A month goes by. A month goes by, and I'm sitting up in the chance of looking out in the congregation, and there is this complete commotion in the back. Uh, The ushers are trying to get this plate moving, and I'm trying to see who it is. I won't mention her name, although none of you would ever know her, but she was... It wasn't surprising that there was a hang-up because of her. But I was watching, and she was making change in the collection plate and was not happy with, with the way that it was going. I mean, people were totally mortified. But at that very moment, at that very moment, what I realized, she's a lot more comfortable in the Lord than I am. She gave cheerfully, for God loves a cheerful giver. I gave triumphantly. She gave to God. I gave to be seen by other people. She could have cared less what anybody thought of her when that's all I cared about. I wasn't comfortable with the fact that I I do give uh, to the Lord in in my tithes and offerings. I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew that. 
and so I put the blank envelope. Um, feel free to use that if you're ever on vacation. It works. <laughs> it works. Um, and I actually went to the counters on Monday and said, if you open up a blank envelope, it's mine. It's mine. So I said. And so even in my Christian walk, I have a lot of projection. I don't, um, and especially being an ordained uh, a clergyman, um, you know, there are certain things that I, I want you to, to think about me. And so I, at a cocktail party one night, I almost fell out when I was introduced by a friend who is not a Christian to another person at the cocktail party. And she said, this is Andrew. He's a minister, but you'd never know it. And um, now what she was saying is that she felt that I was approachable and accessible and not, not all hung up on stuff. Uh, but when she said it, I couldn't help but think, oh, my goodness, um, you know, fail, total failure. Um, and so when it comes to money, um, money is an area of projection for everybody one way uh, or the other. There are those who try to project wealth uh, by thousands of means. And so here Ananias is, is trying to project his generosity and his wealth uh, to the church by this gift. And yet uh, he really, uh, he's, broke, he's broken on a no- number of levels. Uh, but really, if he thinks that that's the end-all, be-all, that that's what's going to give him satisfaction, uh, he's going to live the rest of his life, uh, what little there is left of it, uh, with this overwhelming sense of regret and shame, which uh, he experiences in the midst of Peter. But for the people that try to project wealth, um, it's remarkable when the economy turned in 2007, uh, Beaufort, South Carolina is a really lovely place to visit if, if you ever get a chance. It's right on the water. Uh, as the crow flies smack dab between Savannah and Charleston, and a, a great, a great—it's a fun place. It's a water town, uh, so it's a little bit like Mobile in, in that sense. But um, a lot of people were coming in that were really struggling financially, and uh, and th- they were having a very hard time. Uh, but I was always surprised to hear them come in and say, you know, I mean, it's going to get to the point where we're actually going to have to sell the boat. And, and sell the house on the water. And then we're probably going to, this actually happened, we're going to have to probably even sell our house in St. Martin. Uh, and I just thought, well, that's a start. Um, yeah, I mean, sort of they, I mean for them, it, it had become, those things were so wrapped up in their identity that they couldn't think of parting for them, uh, even though anybody who had some sort of self-awareness uh, and objectivity would understand we're in financial trouble. Say goodbye to St. Martin, right? That's just kind of what you're going to have to do. Uh, and yet, uh, a lot of people don't because of the projection of their identity. But on the other hand, the other side of the same coin are those who actually are wealthy, who try to project uh, that may, they're trying to dispel any notion that they may, in fact, be wealthy. And this is what I like to call TJ Maxx syndrome. So what happens is you're wearing something new, and you may have paid a good deal of money for it, uh, or you may not have. Uh, but the moment someone compliments you, you're like, that's really lovely. I got it on sale. Right. You want to dispel any notion that anybody thinks that you would have actually paid retail uh, for something like that because you don't want them to think that you're going to spend that much money on clothes or on a vehicle or 
on a, on a house. I mean, I've heard some, you know, um, uh, you know, we bought this. Uh, oh, your house is amazing. It is, but lots of people have died in it. We got a great deal. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, when Jesus has actually even come to relieve us of the bur- uh, burden of trying to justify ourselves to anybody, that actually being under grace and not under the law allows you the freedom and the ability to say, yeah, I like it too. That's why I bought it. <laughs> or to be comfortable living in a large home, to driving uh, the car uh, that you drive, that there really shouldn't be any shame in that unless you're convicted uh, that maybe you are overspending or that you are being a poor steward of, of your funds. Uh, but if you're a Christian, I believe that the Holy Spirit is going to work in your life and convict you of that. And you don't need me telling you you should have thought twice about that uh, when God will certainly do it for you. Uh, and so uh, if I ever come to you and say, well, that is a really uh, gigantic ring on your hand, um, uh, say, uh, yes, it is. Um, thank you. <laughs> So you have uh, the freedom to do that, uh, but also with wealth, uh, there's the uh, easy thing of resenting somebody uh, over those things, and that gets awfully close to envy. And so seeing somebody driving a vehicle that you may not necessarily want, but your reaction is, yeah, who do they think they are? Right? Who do they think they are? Or uh, whatever, whatever it might be, uh, whatever uh, it it, it is that's, uh, that's going on uh, in your life um, that, that you're in Christ and your identity is in him. And normally you can tell that in somebody. Uh, we all suffer from insecurity. And so my thing is when someone's like, oh, that's a really nice shirt. Like, oh, I got it at TJ Maxx. Because, I mean, I probably did, but I just want you to know that, right? I didn't. I didn't um, buy it at whatever place that, that would normally uh, normally sell it. Um, and so what happens with Ananias and all of us to a, a certain extent and sometimes to the same extent as Ananias is that he wanted it for himself. He not only wanted to be able to hold back some of the money, he wanted the acknowledgement. He wanted to be able to bask in the praise of the church. He put money before the Lord the self before Jesus. And um, money uh, gets a bad rap. You know, uh, a lot of people will misquote the Bible and say, well, money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. Uh, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. And money is such an easy, it's a sticky idol. And uh, when I talk to premarital couples uh, before, before they get married, we, we spend a little bit of time talking about money. And what I'll tell them is I'll say, the thing about money is this. Money is often the arena in which you fight about things that have nothing to do with money. Money is just the easy way to fight about something. And so that, that's been the case. You know, money tends to be what my spouse, who I won't name because I shouldn't do that, uh, what she and I will be, will be fighting about. But really, there's something else totally going on, and money is just how it's manifesting itself uh, in our lives. And so money has a way uh, of doing that. And just when I don't think that money is an idol for Andrew Pearson, one of the things that I've been convicted of recently is we have some friends that are doing the Jesus Film Project. Uh, It's been around since the 70s. And what it is, it's the Gospel of Mark. Is that right? 
shows you how good a friend I am. So it's the Gospel of Mark, and it's, it's a film, and it's been translated in all these languages, and uh, they go overseas, and they say they're going to show a film. And I kid you not, like 20,000 people will show up to watch a movie in, in certain areas of the, of the world, and they show the Jesus film, and it's an evangelistic uh, outreach. And um, they sent us, they came and stayed with us for a weekend and wanted to talk to us about supporting them. And so there we are in my living room uh, being said, you know, we really like your support. And I always think that, you know, I, I'll admit my own heart. I thought, you know, this is, this is a little bit, um, a little bit much. But I, I just, to cut them off, I said, oh, oh, we'd be more than happy to support you. We'd be more than happy to support you. So I fill out the pledge card and I put $100. And I thought, that is very generous, Andrew. Like, you know, this is above and beyond your pledge. Uh, you're, really, you're really doing, uh, you're, you're supporting the work of the Lord in the vineyard. And I kid you not, that night uh, we went out to dinner and dropped some obscene amount of money at Highlands. And I didn't think twice about signing the bill. Didn't think twice about it. And I've been thinking a lot about that recently and thinking how hard-pressed I am. uh, Not just, it wasn't them. It wasn't them. It was just uh, when I think of ministry, all of a sudden I sort of gather my resources and I hold them in and I think, they're mine. That's one thing. And I might let a little bit out to support the kingdom. And, and that, and it's a big, major, monumental decision. And then I go to someplace like Highlands, where my God is my belly. And I'll just, I don't even look at the prices anymore, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to be like France. I'm going to die happy and fat. I just don't care. I'll take up smoking at some point. It'll be great. And it'll keep me thin. Um, but, but I'm just, uh, so, and not looking at the prices, well, I'm not a slave to money, when in fact, what I am is a slave to myself and my own urgings and my own cravings. And so, in light of all of that, why is Ananias dead and Andrew still alive? <laughs> I mean, honestly, how is it that, that he receives such judgment and, and, I, and I haven't? One of the things um, that is hard about the Bible uh, not just this passage, is this whole notion and often reality that God is wiping out entire people groups. Right? So let's look at the Old Testament for a minute, which is a parallel to the story of Ananias and Sapphira and, and this property of judgment that God possesses. When the Israelites were led out of Egypt and they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and they were about to enter Canaan on the other side of the Jordan and go after Jericho, what did God tell them to do? Right? There's the awful quote, uh, it's a true quote, uh, where uh, at Chancellorsville, when Stonewall Jackson took his men and rode around the Union flank, and as they came, they, they, the Union army did not see them, and so they came upon them, and it was awful. They almost drove them all the way into the Potomac River, and when one rider came back to Jackson before he would uh, die in that battle uh, or die from a wound in that battle, uh, they said, General Jackson, what, what are your orders? And Jackson said, kill them. Kill them all. Right. Uh, and a lot of people hear the Old Testament and hear a word like that, kill them, kill them all. And what God does say is this is the land that's been given to Abraham originally, and the Israelites are to go and they're to possess it. Here's something very curious. God does give a very heavy order. He says, I want you to go in. 
You're not to intermarry. You're to get rid of all these people. You're not to leave any stone unturned. Do you know how often the Israelites do it? If you read your, like once. They actually, and that wasn't even quite. They got in trouble for something else. Uh, so it actually doesn't really happen. There's not this mass genocide that happens in the Old Testament. And not only that, a lot of people will say, well, this is a God of, uh, of... But do you know who the judgment is actually against? It's not the Canaanites. That's another thing. People are like these poor, innocent Canaanites. I mean, these, the Canaanites were sacrificing their children. I mean, that, that, that was part of their religious cult system. But it actually wasn't a judgment necessarily against the Canaanites. It was a judgment against who? The Israelites. God knew them so well, and he said, you're no people, and that's why I'm adopting you. There's nothing, there's not, nothing I look at you and say, well, this is why I'm going to make you my people. In fact, you're the least of the least. You're, bondages, you're, bond, you're in bondage in Egypt. You're slaves, and I'm going to call you out. And they say, oh, well, we're God's chosen people. And then they go wander in the wilderness, and why did they wander for 40 years? That's how long it took to purge everybody who had been in Egypt out. So that everybody, with few exceptions, that came into the promised land had never experienced Egypt except through story. Because the propensity of the Israelites was to do it. Let's go back to Egypt. Really? You'd rather go back to slavery? I mean, even Jesus has an interaction with the Pharisees when uh, Jesus was talking about um, having authority over people. And one Pharisee says, "We're, we're God's chosen people. We've never been in bondage to anybody. Jesus is like, really? Uh, really? That's just historically not true. How could you say something like that? So they lack total perspective. And what God knows is that when the Israelites get into the promised land, and this is what happens, they're going to fall from faith. All right? They're going to become an ungodly generation. They're going to capitulate to whatever the religious, cultural milieu is of the Canaanite people. And that's exactly what's happening. So when God says, have nothing to do with the Canaanites, it's not a judgment per se against the Canaanites. It's a judgment against his own people who are known to be faithless. Now, when it comes to Ananias and Sapphira, one of the things that we see is this is in the early church where there's heavy persecution. And Luke tells us Satan had entered Ananias's heart. Which means Ananias, a leader in the community, for Ananias to get away with this has the potential of ripping the church in pieces. Because at this point, they're not above reproach. Already, they're teetering on the edge. of Now, of course, God is on their side, and that means everything. Uh, But that had the power to take it totally out. And in some sense, God removes the blame of Ananias' sin by removing him and his wife from the community of the early Christians. Now, the Bible actually doesn't say uh, that that God struck them down. It doesn't say that Peter struck them down. Peter clearly did not have the ability. He wasn't like he could do a mind meld, you know, where he could kind of... He couldn't do anything like that. And uh, certainly, just because Peter said, you're going to die, uh, God is not Peter's lackey. Uh, And so if you read commentators, there is, uh, they said, yes, this is clearly God's judgment at one level, uh, but just uh, the overwhelming fear of the Lord put in them uh, enough to kill somebody. And I thought, that's crazy. 
I was like, I don't know that I've ever been so fearful that I thought that I might fall over and die. And then I started talking to people who have. And I actually read, there was a guy named Thomas, who at the turn of the 14th century was the Archbishop of York. And he went before Edward I, and Edward I dressed him down. And before he could leave the king's chambers, he was not an old man, he was only in his 40s, uh, he dropped dead uh, because of Edward, Edward's tirade uh, against him. And I said, well, there you go. Uh, so regardless of, of, of how, how they died, uh, this great and terrible judgment uh, against them uh, because of the circumstance surrounding the early church uh, and what they did. And not just that, being done with the volition and, and foresight that they did it, and even the opportunities for mercy here within the story, especially for Sapphira. Are you sure this is how much was, was spent? Yes, that's exactly how much was spent. And she dies. Okay, <laughs> where's the good news? One thing to draw from this is um, don't mess with Texas. Uh, when I lived in England, uh, everybody thought, and I thought this was only, I spent a summer in Russia, and everyone thought the same thing, and I thought England would be better. It wasn't. Everyone thought that I was either a millionaire or a rancher, and I was definitely from Texas. Uh, none of the three were true. And uh, this um, idea of... Um, God is a just judge. He is. And uh, although his judgments are altogether good, uh, I can understand why on earth we would look at it and say, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem right. Whether it seems like those who are punished ought not to get punished so badly, or those who have done bad and, and they got away with it. And yet what we know, what the Bible tells us, is that one, all things will be made plain to us, that there will come a day when everything will make sense. That, and at the great judgment day, when everything is made plain to us, nobody's getting away with anything. Nobody's getting away with anything. And this gives us a glimpse that God's judgment is real. Right? Yes, he is the God whose property is always to have mercy, but as the psalmist says, this is where justice and peace have met, right? This is where it's been met. So God is perfectly just, but he's also perfectly merciful. And this is one of those times where I look at the story and I think, um, actually, I don't find myself being too critical. Uh, I don't find myself saying, God, this is unfair. And I don't find myself being overly critical of Ananias because I don't feel like I'm any better than he is. And I sort of feel if you've ever disciplined a child or you remember being a child with your parent and you had siblings, have you ever been in that moment where one of the parents is disciplining your brother or your sister or you're disciplining one of the children? And what is your posture if you're the other sibling? You keep your mouth shut, right? You know not to open your mouth while your sister or your brother is getting it, you just sit quietly. Why? Because it's one of those moments where, like John Hooper, you say, there but for the grace of God, go I. There for the grace of God, go I. And so, uh, as pledge season is upon us, I'm just kidding. I, was <laughs> I do think the thing to say here 
is that in the early church, I've already alluded to this, it is very much like when the Israelites went into Canaan that the purity of the church and the mission of the church is just that important. That God will go to great lengths in order to protect and to shield his people. That even in the midst of what seems like judgment is actually a merciful act. Now, now that the church is moved uh, move on to now 2014, um, and someone might want to take issue with me on this, and that's fine, uh, but we see in the church today, especially in the church in America, we don't see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the way that the book of Acts shows it, shows him, right? So in the book of Acts, you have things like Pentecost, where all of a sudden people are speaking in all these foreign languages. Now, I do think that God can is able to do that today, and in some cases he has. I've heard stories about missionaries overseas uh, being gifted by the Holy Spirit to do amazing supernatural things, uh, but uh, in areas that were like the early church, uh, but in areas uh, that especially, goodness me, the, the southern United States, the manifestations of the Spirit are, are not that. He uses us uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to further his gospel and to preach the kingdom of God, uh, but not in the same way that he did in the book of Acts. And so, on the one hand, God is willing to go to extremes here to protect his people and to protect his church. You can see why I was so excited about doing this on Rally Day. So it's a hard word, but I'm going to give you some time actually uh, right now um, to... uh, to ask me some questions because these are pretty, this is some pretty heavy stuff. So I'm actually just going to stop. Andrew, do you ever find it? um, So I I struggle with this when I read the Bible and I have not read much of the Bible, but so like I can take what Jesus says and because I believe that he is son of God, Mm -hmm. but like everything else, like the story about Ananias and, I've been reading the Paul's letters to the Corinthians, and I'm kind of like, what is he talking about? Mm-hmm. I have no idea what he's talking about right. on many passages. And then you go to the Old Testament, and you're like trying to struggle to make a sensible interpretation right. out of what otherwise seems your initial reaction being like, what is God trying to say to me? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, is that struggle natural? Do you ever, like, find yourself being like, Am I trying to make wine out of water here? Am I making too much of this? I mean, I know that God is trying to speak to us through these prophets and through Paul, but sometimes I just have such difficulty. I mean, I had questions. I asked Joe Gibbs about this exact passage, and he was like, Did he blow it, or did he actually? Well, I, like, called him. I called him right before he went into church. He was like, I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, perfectly, that's perfectly natural. And in fact, Acts uh, gives us a wonderful story where this happens. Where remember the Ethiopian eunuch is in the chariot and he's reading uh, from the book of Isaiah and Philip walks up while the chariot's moving along, not that fast, but enough to keep up with him. And, um, uh, and Philip says, well, what are you reading? And he goes, I have no idea. Uh, how, how can I understand what's going on unless somebody explains it to me? And Philip jumps in the chariot and explains it to him. And his eyes, God uses Philip to have the Ethiopian eunuch's eyes open uh, to the gospel. Um, There are uh, passages that I read still today where God opens my eyes up afresh 
reading them. Um, there is a consistency uh, in the Bible, and then, uh, I know you, so we can go out to lunch and, and talk about this. When I, I mean, it's I do believe that it's all God breathed, and that it all points to Jesus and and what uh, what He's doing. Um, one of the things I didn't mention was the issue of Ananias and Sapphira um, uh, and their faith. But I'm actually not going to judge them for that. Um, only God knows who are His. Um, so it's a hard story, and um, and I think that that's why I really think Mark Twain is helpful. Uh, when Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts I do. <laughs> and, uh, and and that's, that's, that's really where the wrestling uh, comes in. And you're going to wrestle with the scriptures your whole life, especially when they become, when you realize that, that, that they penetrate your own heart and they upset your own life, um, as I've been talking about my own life here. And so you read this story and Maybe it's self-centered, but I read Ananias and Sapphira, and I don't think so much, well, what a jerk God is. But I look at it and I think, praise God for his mercy that I'm not in the same boat as that guy. Uh, and, and, and I'm just going to throw myself on the mercy of Jesus, and one day uh, God will make sense for me. And I don't think that that's sunshine and lollipops or, or punning it. It's just uh, I, I'm trying to know when I keep my mouth shut and uh, – God doesn't need, need me to explain him away. He's big enough to take care of himself. Yeah, I would just add that, that we're all Ananias and Sapphira. That's that, right. That we don't trust in the Lord's provision. That uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's right. So that whole idea of that we're different from them, right. God made it clear That's right. that you're no people. I didn't pick you because you were special. That's right. Andrew, I know this, this might sound a little churchy, but it, I think it's true. Uh, to Rhett's question, um, we don't always have uh, a teacher, uh, a Philip to jump in the chariot with us when we're reading Scripture, but we do have the power of the Holy Spirit. That's right. And, and, and to invoke that before we approach Scripture, um, God, I think God honors that and God uses His Spirit to do that with mm-hmm. us so that you know we don't have any understanding on our own, but if we would, and when we approach Scripture by asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what He would have us learn through this passage, then it really is—it's amazing what happens. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, our understanding is not inherent to us, and um, and that was the radical idea of the Reformation. That's actually what got Luther in the most trouble was, and and in the English Reformation, the fact that people could actually open up their Bibles and read it for themselves and have God, the Holy Spirit, speak through them and bring them to all truth. That's radical. That's a, that, that, was, that was the world that the idea that turned the world on its ear at the time of the Reformation came. Hey, um, I may be misremembering this, but is it act, like in the chapter before, the chapter after, isn't there some statement about the, 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 how the, the church held all things in common or something like that? Yes, uh, it did. And, so this actually, um, this actually helps clarify what that meant. Um, what, what the church had was not sort of a socialist community but what it was is that the church was willing to go to bat for its members who had little, that they were willing to liquidate their own holdings in order to provide for those who didn't have. Yeah, every, everybody knew about it. And, and that was, I mean, that, that's the crazy, it's just a tragic story because it didn't have, have to happen. 
like Ananias and Sapphira could have easily have said, we're going to give you 5%. And they would have said, you know, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, but he'll take from a grouch too. It's me. Um, yes, Lauren. Yes. It, this is the only time, though, in the New Testament where this kind of thing happens or not. That's my question. My first. Well, and then the second is, when did the Holy Spirit come? Because always in my head I justified that kind of, um, God's justice in that particular way and that the Holy Spirit was not present. Yeah. And that's why this particular passage is... Yeah, yeah the Holy Spirit has always been present, um, but the, the idea of God himself making his domain and his residence in the life of the believer, the believer becoming the temple of the Holy Spirit, happens at Pentecost. And so it's, it's a greater manifestation where God is actually unleashed on the world, and there's the personal relationship. But that's not absent from the Old Testament uh, at all. After. After. So the other thing, what was your other question? What's for dinner tonight? No, oh, yeah, yeah okay. Um, personal, yeah, personal, st- naming names, yes. There's, and when Paul writes to the Corinthians, man, y'all really make me jog. Uh, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, for instance, there are those who are gathering around the communion table and not discerning the body of Christ, which is a whole other topic for another time, what that means, and, and they're becoming sick, some even dying. So, so I guess you can say that there are people dying uh, as a result of that elsewhere in the New Testament but not as particular and spotlighted as, and as public as this. Back to work. Thank you, David. Let's pray. I feel, this is such heavy stuff, but I feel like this is the job of the church. We need to talk about this. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you humbled um, in light of your perfection uh, and your love for us, even though we don't deserve it. And so, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be in the right place, one, that we could be honest with you and with one another, uh, but above all, that you would guard our hearts uh, from our own self-interest. And, Lord, that we would indeed um, give ourselves wholly over to you and trust in you to make a way where there seems to be uh, no way. And so, Lord, as we look at Ananias and Sapphira, that we would be reminded uh, of your great love and your mercy, uh, but at the same time, uh, your great power, but that in our lives, only by your mercy have you decided uh, to use it uh, for our good and not for our ill, and so that we might cling to that promise now and always. In Jesus' name, amen.